Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this ability to gather together as family, a family that you've ordained in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you for unifying us, for giving us this time of fellowship with you. Father, thank you for showing us and revealing to us your heart, especially regarding the gospel of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we're so blessed to be here this evening and so grateful to you for all that you've given us in terms of faith by grace. We pray for those that are still ill in our congregation, Father, that you heal them. And we pray for those that are still lost in this world, that you heal them in an even better way. We are most grateful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make an evening like this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, um, what is repentance and who gets to define it? It should be abundantly clear um, at this point what repentance is and who gets to define it, but there's still some things that the Spirit wants to say. Um, but before we dig into any of the details, um, let me start with a little story. A man had two sons. One Saturday, they were all outside playing wiffle ball. The father had recently erected a solid picket fence because the family had just gotten a puppy and they needed to ensure that the little pup had an enclosed place to roam about. And somewhere around the third inning of their game, uh, the boys heard the annual 4th of July parade passing by. And in years past, they would all just sort of turn based on the location of their home. They would all just turn their attention to the road and enjoy the procession. But the picket fence precluded the boys from actually seeing the parade, though the father could see it clearly, being tall enough to see over the top of the fence. The boys loved the parade and were immediately distressed. The father was a strong man, so he said, here, boys, jump up into my arms, one to the left and one to the right, and I'll hold you up so you can see over the fence. His younger son leaped into his father's arms without hesitation, giving him a big hug around the neck out of gratitude. However, his older son, being decidedly independent, refused to take his father up on the offer. Instead, while the other two enjoyed the parade, the older boy tried feverishly to stack an old milk carton. Still too short, he mumbled. Feeling mighty ingenious, he dragged one of the lawn chairs over and stacked the milk carton on top of that. Of course, while he was doing all of this, the parade was passing by. He jumped up onto the milk carton, which was now teetering suspiciously on the lawn chair. And for a split second, he did catch the twinkling of, a, of some of the brass off of the marching band's tuba. But his makeshift solution quickly crumbled and he toppled onto the grass. 
His father, having given his stubborn son the opportunity to fail, offered him his arm again. Instead, the older boy sat there embarrassed, arms crossed, and then he said, I didn't want to see that stupid parade anyways. And his little brother said, well, that's good because it's already passed. You missed it, big brother. And the younger brother was genuinely sad for his older brother, even though he knew enough to see that it was his brother's own fault he missed the parade. The father just shook his head and said, you should have taken me up on my offer. And the older son just stormed into the house. This is a picture of conversion, my friends. The little brother heard the call of the parade, knew he'd never be able to see over the wall of his own accord. So he gladly accepted his father's free offer to lift him up. The older brother heard the call and even caught a glimpse of the band. But having refused his father's help, went away never seeing the parade. This is analogous to one boy being saved by grace and the other dying in his sins. And this, frankly, my friends, is all the Spirit's been teaching us of late. Nothing more. Very simple. Very simple. If any of it is complicated or confusing to you, please know that God did not place that confusion there. But one or more of your enemies has. Go to 1 Corinthians 14.33. 1 Corinthians 14.33. Again, if you're confused about any of this, it's not God's fault. We know this from Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14.33. Verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God is not a God of confusion. And I was thinking about this. I suppose in some ways, much of this is typical And what I mean to say is that once a person is delivered from any false notion about conversion, salvation by grace, and the gospel of Jesus Christ proper, looking back becomes a time of sad chuckling, if that makes sense. Sad in the sense that you spent any time confused at all over something so simple and chuckling in the way we do when we realize how stupid we've been on a subject. Sort of a, you know, that sad chuckle. Like, <laughs> With that said, let's press on now in our studies as we've still got some ground to cover on our primary topic, what is repentance and who gets to define it. Here's a highlight reel to date up here on the board, and this has everything to do with divine justice. Don't miss it, please. Since we are commanded to repent, believe, and have faith, it is righteous and good and honest to say 
that we are handed personal accountability to God on the subject of our own salvation. Since we are commanded to do these things, it is righteous to say that we are handed personal accountability to God on the topic of our own salvation. That's point number one. However, point number two, we have also learned that it is by God's grace alone that we are even able to repent, believe, have saving faith, etc., etc., and the list goes on and on. In fact, God saves those He's chosen no more, no less. He already knows. Believe it or not, the little girl, the little boy that's going to be born this evening in the hospital, He already knows if He's going to save them or not. So we also know from Scripture that no one comes to the Father unless He draws them. So those two things, although they pose somewhat of a paradox to the human mind, are absolutely supernaturally stupendous, uh, impossible fully to even teach other than to teach the, the plain facts about it. You're held responsible but God delivers us by grace. You're held responsible personally for your own salvation, but yet God is the one who gives you every means possible to actually make the decision. So given the fact that our God is not a God of confusion, but rather of peace, and go to 2 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3.16, 2 Timothy 3.16. So we just saw in 1 Corinthians 14.33 that God is not a God of confusion. But we also have the likes of 2 Timothy 3.16. Which reads very simply, 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired, Theonoustos, God-breathed by God. So he's not a God of confusion, and all Scripture is God-breathed. What we must conclude, then, simply, is that God has made salvation a really simple thing. And notice, please, that I did not say, when I said simple, I didn't say accommodating to man. And that's what Satan wants some to believe, that simple equals accommodating. That's, those are two different things. See, man defines simple as, well, I'm lazy and I just want everybody to spoon feed me everything, so it's simple for me. That's what I define simple as. In other words, even the God, the holy sovereign God of the universe has to accommodate me, has to bend his will to mine. That would make it simple for me. And some will have you believe that that's what the gospel is. It's that simple. God will bend His will to accommodate you. And that's what we call grace. Oh, that's a lie. That's not grace. That's not God's grace. That's a lie from the pit of hell. So simple does not mean accommodating to man. I said simple. Let me show you how simple it really is, which is why Jesus spoke so easily 
and yet unapologetically about it. And remember, simple doesn't mean unoffensive by default. In fact, as I've taught you over the years, the truth is always offensive to the arrogant. Go to Luke 18.9. Luke 18.9. So get those definitions straight in your head. Just because something is simple doesn't even mean it's, quote, easy. Matter of fact, Jesus Christ said you must agonize to get through the narrow gate. That doesn't sound simple, easy at all, does it? <laughs> at least not from man's perspective. Luke 18.9 And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Up here on the board, who trusted in themselves. This is a picture of an arrogant unbeliever to be contrasted in the remainder of the parable with a believer who is saved through humility. So right out of the gate, we have a picture of an arrogant unbeliever contrasted to a person who's ultimately saved through humility. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember a parable? I've taught you this. Parables have one main theme, and hopefully you can see it at this juncture. Ask yourselves this very probing question. Now, I need you to concentrate. Ask yourself this, uh, ask yourself this very probing question. Assuming the humble man was eventually saved in this story as a result of being justified, and assuming that the humble man was an unbeliever before being sent away justified, how could this man realize his own depravity being totally enraptured as an unbeliever in his sin? It's a fair question, because some people postulate false gospels on this question. How can this person who was born in sin, totally depraved, enslaved to the sovereignty of sin, how can they realize the state that they're in? And that's the $20,000 question, isn't it? But it's really very simple. <laughs> you see, some will argue that since an unbeliever can't do anything for himself before salvation, that rejecting the self-life, a.k.a. the sin they were born into holy, cannot be a part of saving grace. But that's literally the stupidest thing a person could ever argue for. Literally. While the assumption is correct, man is totally hopeless, that is correct. Does everybody agree? Yeah. The conclusion is utterly wrong. Go to Romans 5.6. Romans 5.6. Oh yeah, every man and woman is born utterly hopeless and helpless without any hope whatsoever. 
of even making a positive decision to Christ. Unless, because why would they? Right? Romans 5, 6, For while we were still what? Helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God knows how helpless you are in your born estate. So if he's going to make all these demands, then he has to, by grace, close the gap. He has to enable you somehow. Because the estate that you were born in has no idea, no ability whatsoever to deliver itself. Doesn't really even know where to start. (laughs) Again, it's 100% true that we are born totally helpless. However, to conclude that God is unable to quicken us to repentance and saving faith is a grave error that many so-called Christian churches have made. God saves, man is involved. Here's what we can say from Scripture, that God's grace is all-sufficient. All-sufficient. Certainly enough to quicken a totally depraved person to repentant faith. Certainly enough. Abundantly able. God's perfect. He can do anything He wants. Now, I want to show you something in the Bible that maybe you've never noticed before. Um, you recall that we just read the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, which amplified the truth the Spirit's been making about the role of repentance in conversion. Well, wouldn't you just know it that Jesus continues to build momentum on this topic in this passage? So let me lay it out before you before we actually read it together. Sorry about the eye chart, but... Hopefully you can read most of it. The simplicity of the gospel. We're going to read this, so don't jump forward. Luke 18, 9-14 is about conversion. Repentance and justification by faith is in view. That's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke 18, 15-17 is about simplicity. The faith of a child. Entrance into the kingdom is in view. Luke 18, 18 to 25 is about rejection, refusing to deny self. The parable of the rich young ruler. Luke 18, 26 to 27 is about grace, God saves. And then Luke 18, 28 to 30 is about salvation, eternal life in the kingdom. That's not hard. None of these things are hard. Here it is. You ready? One guy chooses, one guy doesn't. It's this simple. Do you see it? One guy rejects, one guy saved by grace and gets entrance into the kingdom. That doesn't sound difficult at all to me. So we'll just see it. Let's read this fantastic passage again. Look at uh, Luke 18.9. Luke 18.9. Actually, we'll go, go, we just read it, so go to uh, 18.14. We'll just jump forward, catch the tail end. Luke 18, 14. Okay, that was weird because I went 18, 9, everybody stopped, and I went 18, 14, and people flipped like nine pages. <laughs> oh, you guys have the super large print? Verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, how does he do that? How does he humble himself? How does a sinner humble themselves? Well, God allows it. God enables it even. Isn't that awesome? Again, that we just saw was the first point on the board, a picture of conversion. Repentance and justification by faith were in view. That's what we call the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Very popular um, parable for obvious reasons. Let's continue, though. The point is that we're going to see how Jesus just lays it out. He says, "This is look, guys, look. Is this difficult? One guy's just trying to justify himself. He's self-righteous. And one guy's not. I'm not going to save that guy because he's self-righteous. He needs to deny self because he's self-righteous. I'm not going to save that one. I'm going to save this guy over here. Even though the world says, oh, he's a nasty dreg of society being a tax collector. I don't care. I, I'm looking at the heart here, people. Luke 18, 15. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the, the children to come to me. And do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So Jesus clearly states that a person must approach him like a child, with a, let's call it a trusting dependence on the one with resources to save them that they themselves do not have. That's what it means to have the faith of a child. A child says, there's no way. You know, like the, my, my little parable I made up, the younger child said, there's no way I can get over this fence. Dad, can you pick me up? Sure. The other one says in his self-righteous arrogance, I'm going to do it myself, and fails to do it. And the parade passes by, and he dies in his sins. That's the, that's, is that hard to understand? No. It's all he's asking for. It's all he's looking for. So that's our second bullet. Simplicity. Faith of a child. That's how you get into the, the kingdom. The next is Luke 18, 18 to 25. This is about rejection of the gospel truth, of the offer from God himself. And that means refusing to deny self. That's the parable of the rich young ruler. And see the flow here. You see what Jesus is doing? Just building, basically laying it all out. And this is what it looks like. Luke 18, 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. He's being sarcastic, right? Because this guy was not a believer. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. You see the difficulty? It was, that, it was simple. Jesus said, this is what you need to do. In other words, you need to get rid of the self-life. It's simple. 
But it was difficult. That's why the man became sad. Because from the manhood side, it was difficult. Because Jesus wasn't about to accommodate this man. What should I do to get into the, get eternal uh, life? What, what do I need to do? And Jesus says, it's really simple. You've got to drop the self-life. Oh, all of a sudden it became really difficult, you see? Simple is not accommodating. <coughs> simple does not mean it's not going to have some difficulty from man's perspective. And that's the great perversion, <coughs> excuse me, nowadays in the churches. Is that simple or grace somehow equates to accommodating man. That God's going to bend to man. And it's funny because he just says, if you listen to what I'm saying to you, then you'll follow me. What did Jesus say about his sheep? They hear my voice and they what? Okay, isn't that what he's saying? But this guy can't hear anything. This guy's not hearing it. He's obviously speaking with them, but he's not hearing it. I guess God didn't want him to hear it. So when he had heard these things, he became, became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy? Do you see the struggle? How hard is it? Doesn't, grace, look, grace does not mean accommodating to man. So Jesus took, uh, uh, looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to end the, enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So here we have the, quote, difficulty of salvation. And that's right. I said difficulty to highlight the simple fact that from man's perspective, there are lots of fleshly reasons to say no to the gospel that people opt for in the end. As I've said before, though grace is easy for God, it's not always easy, a.k.a. it's difficult, for man to accept. It's not always easy for man to accept. We're that stupid, frankly. So that's verses 18 to 25 on the board. Rejection, refusing to deny self, parable of rich young ruler. uh, Jesus' disciples then throw the biggest question of all right out there, uh, then, uh, there and then, and he gives them the absolute simplest of answers. So he uses the rich young ruler as, his, as an example of rejection, of a refusal to deny the self-life, if you would. And they said, then who can be saved? If it's easier for an ant, a camel to go through the eye of a needle, then who can be saved? Look how simple he says, verse 27. But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. That's that simple. It's not like Jesus didn't know. I think it was Spurgeon that said this. It's not, that, it's not like Jesus didn't know who he was talking to and their own inabilities when he said, repent. It's not like he didn't know their inabilities, but yet he said it just the same, didn't he? He said, repent. He said, you can't follow me if you don't desire, deny yourself. It's not like he didn't know their weaknesses and their inabilities. He just um, he said, basically, I'm putting this out there so that you know. This is the truth. You can't follow me if you refuse to deny yourself. You can't follow me if you refuse to repent. 
And so he told parables about this over and over again. And it wasn't difficult. But you might argue like some people do even today in contemporary Christianity. Well, that's impossible for someone to repent because they were born in their sins. No kidding. Tell me something I don't know. You know what else is impossible? For them to even believe. Because why would someone dead in their sins believe in anything other than what they know? <laughs> Unless God enables them to. Why stop at repentance? Why not just carry it all the way through? If they're incapable of anything, doing anything towards God, why not just say they can't repent, they can't have faith, they can't be saved? They can't even believe for crying out loud. Those are all true statements. Tell me something I don't know. And then I'll tell you about God's grace. Because that's what I see in verses 26 and 27. Who the heck, who can be saved? Isn't that the obvious question? Did he just say that? They probably looked at each other like dopes, right? Did he just say that? Because a camel's really big and the eye of an eagle's little. Who can be saved? With God, all things are possible. End of story. That's a beautiful thing. That's where the story should end. So anyways, it's that simple. God commands things for salvation, doesn't He? He commands them, says you're held responsible. And then He gives us the ability to meet those demands. Okay, one more point. That was grace that God saves. Finally, of course, we have Jesus' encouragement to His disciples and to all of us who have turned to Jesus in repentant faith. Look at verse 28. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left, his, uh, left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much as this time, at this time, and in the age to come, eternal life. So really, there you have it in a nutshell. Jesus talking about the salvation plan of God in both parable and what we might call literary narrative formats. And he was not talking specifically about this so-called issue of spiritual maturity. That was not in there. This is a, these are salvation passages. He's illustrating salvation. He's illustrating the grace of God. He's illustrating repentance. He's illustrating conversion. He's illustrating justification by faith, which is a forensic that Paul dealt with in many chapters in Romans. He's dealing with these things so simply and so easily that we ought to have the faith of a child. We ought not have to understand the forensics that Paul exhaustively taught the Roman church. Who here thinks they've got everything in the book of Romans down pat? I don't. But I understand what Jesus was saying. What have I taught you? The hardest part about a shepherd's job is unraveling complexities that the kingdom of darkness has woven into your soul. They wouldn't be there. Remember how we started? God's not a God of confusion. Those complexities wouldn't even be there if it wasn't for your enemies, including your own flesh, by the way. Because look at how simple it is from Jesus' perspective. But yet it's not easy for man. Why? Because we listen to our enemies. 
we abide in the sin life when we're born. But that's Jesus talking about the salvation plan of God in both parable and narrative formats. And again, he was not talking about some uh, Gnostic or um, higher level spirituality. Some might call it, quote, spiritual maturity. He wasn't talking about that stuff. It's very simple. And he most definitely was not talking about a way to salvation that only existed for a so-called different dispensation. There's only one gospel. There's only one kingdom. He most definitely was not talking about a different gospel or some different, I don't know, salvation from some other dispensation. What he was talking about, what he always talked about, was something very simple to understand. Hence the flow of his words on the board. Conversion, simplicity, rejection, grace, salvation. Yeah. Without saying much more on this, I'll say that there are those whose eardrums vibrate to the word of Christ. And it registers in their brains. But they do not hear what the Lord says to His own. And they may be sitting in churches every Sunday, but it doesn't matter. When the Lord spoke to John, He said, up here on the board, Revelation 2.7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. But what's the supposition there is that he who has an ear. Well, if you're deaf as a doornail, how are you going to hear anything? So, for example, again, I believe there are lots of so-called Christians out there that have heard the following passage a bazillion times in their lives. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith in that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one may boast. I know, I know there's a lot of Christians that have heard this verse. Awesome. The problem is, some of them don't hear it. Some of those who have heard this passage are going to die in their sins. Why? <clears throat> because they refuse the call that we believers hearken to and heard from our great shepherd. You notice that um, Jesus said, Hey, you ready? My sheep hear my voice, and maybe they follow me? Uh-uh. My sheep hear my voice, and they what? They follow me. Period. Done. Period. Done. They follow me. Any questions? My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Period. End of story. For those who have ears, let them hear. 
Well, you can't hear them if you don't have ears. And who gives you spiritual hearing? God does. <laughs> so you can hear this, this passage a thousand times, a bazillion times. That's a, I don't know if that's a real word, but it didn't actually come up in spell check. Bazillion times. And you may still burn in hell. You may go to church more faithfully than some of you do. And still, you could die in your sins. Yep. That's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was ultra-religious. The tax collector was just repentant. The fundamental difference between an unbeliever who hears the word of Christ and a believer who hears it is what Jesus said in his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in verse 14. I tell you, he who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's it. Pretty simple, right? It is. And one other thought on the simplicity of the gospel, and I was just reflecting on this. These things, when I think about these things and some of the challenges that some of you are facing from without and what have you, it gets me thinking about what's really going on in Christendom. What's really going on? I was just thinking about this. This occurred to me today as I was preparing this for you all. If the gospel were more complicated, might the fallen angels bear a complaint against God's grace that he made it too difficult to understand? Might mere man do likewise? These are just some things to think about. In other words, would man have a valid argument, I guess? I don't know. Just think about how simple it is. Maybe that's why Jesus said simply, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Luke 18, 17. It's not supposed to be difficult. That's the point. What we conclude from Holy Scripture is that a humble person receives spiritual hearing. Go to Matthew twenty two fourteen. <clears throat> Matthew twenty two fourteen. So what we conclude from Holy Scripture is that a humble person receives spiritual hearing. Matthew twenty two fourteen. Fourteen. For many are called, a person must hear the calling, though, but few are chosen. In other words, not all hear. Many are called. We might call that the general call. Right? God would be unjust if He didn't call everybody to the gospel before sentencing them. He would be unjust. But few are chosen. Well, why is that? Because of human responsibility, that's why. Because the human personal accountability that I've been teaching you on. The Bible says you are responsible. You have a part in your own salvation. You can actually, unbelievably, say no. Somehow, God sees that rejection 
God sees that level of arrogance. I don't know how to put it other than that. I don't want to do, I don't want to do God's bidding. Does that make sense? All I know are the facts, that you're held responsible. And if he wants to save you, he will. That's all I know. What happens between there? I think it's really dangerous ground. And I think that's why some Christian churches that really have what we would call good intentions are completely mucked up on this stuff. Because you know why? They ventured into that ground, that holy ground, that God alone works in with an individual. He says, I'm going to hold you responsible, but don't you worry. I'm going to save you if I choose you. What that looks like between those two things, we have a theological word called quicken. It's the best we can come up with. He quickens it. I have no idea, so let's slam them together and say he does it. I have, I, But you see, not everybody does that, and I was guilty of it for years. Wait a minute, I'm not satisfied. I want to know, I want to draw things. I'm going to make things up that I have no right intruding upon. I'm just going to make it up. I'm going to make really big words to sound godly and impressive, to convince you that I, that I know what goes on between a fallen man who's humbly before the Lord in repentance and the God who saves them and plucks them out from eternal damnation. Anybody want to take the mic and explain that? So all I can come at you, the best thing I've learned, and take this, I would encourage you all day long to take this. Listen, if it's not in the Bible, don't make the mistake. Even if you think, here's what the Bible gives us, and you think you're here, you think that you're super-duper theologian extraordinaire, and somehow, someway, you've pieced together bits and pieces of the Bible, and you've come up with all those little things that are God's only don't be so arrogant to back out. Don't be so arrogant to think that when your doctrines become more simple, they're actually more godly. Because that's the truth. Take it from me. Just because you have bigger words or you think you've gone deeper into areas that you know other people maybe not understand yet. And you've got big words to describe. Chances are, you're an idiot. You're just an educated idiot. And I've met many of those, both secular and in the spiritual life. And the more dangerous one, of course, is the latter. Just let it be. If Jesus says you've got to deny yourself, you can't follow him, okay. If he says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me, Okay. If the Bible says, for many are called, but few are chosen, okay. Why not choose them all? Doesn't God want all to say? Well, you talk to God when you get to heaven, if you get there. You ask him these questions. How did he choose? How did you convert that one? I mean, do you even... Anyways. So this begs our, this begs our attention to be given in this moment to this precious words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, I've been hinting on this all night. <coughs> John 10, 26-27, But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. 
That's pretty straightforward too, isn't it? You don't even believe because you're not one of mine. God didn't give me you. The Father didn't give me you. You're one of those sheep. You're one of those people. This, these are my sheep over here. You have a different shepherd, the God of this world. And the Father in heaven, he didn't give me you. He gave me these people over here. And when I go over there and I say, hey, they all go with me. And when I go over there and I say to you, hey, for you to follow me, you've got to leave yourself life behind. And you say, no, guess what you don't do? You don't follow me. Because my sheep follow me. Does that make sense? <laughs> Some people might ask, this is how persistent ignorance is. This is how persistent arrogance is. And trust me, I've been there. Arrogance always tries to find what? A loophole. I want a loophole. I want to live my life, so I want to find a loophole. What must I do to obtain eternal life? Tell me what I must do. Jesus says it very simply. You've got to let go of the self. Oh, no, no, no. Not that one. I need the loophole version. Something that I can, you know, do on my own. Some might ask, but how does an unbeliever who's spiritually dead actually hear Jesus calling them? It's really simple. You ready? We are born deaf, but God gives us hearing. There's that space again. Here's where we were. Here's where he takes us. We call that deliverance or salvation. He plucks us out of the sovereignty of sin and brings us to the sovereignty of righteousness. You were deaf here, now you have hearing. How's that happen? God gave it to you. How do you think it happened? Duh. How do you think you got hearing? How do you think you heard the gospel? How do you think you were even attracted to it? How do you think you even believed it? <laughs> How do you think you were willing to repent of your sins and turn to Christ and have faith that saves nonetheless? How do you think any of that happened? God, that's what we call grace. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's what we call grace. It's, it, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is not some uh, punchline at a, at a party. It's not something you strum on a guitar and have bazillion people run down to the front row and say, I'm in. I want my free ticket. And you sprinkle tickets from above like confetti that people grab and put in their pocket and say, see, on, you know, what is today? February 1st of 2018, I got my ticket to heaven. And Jesus says, cool, come over here. What? No. <laughs> but I got my ticket. That's the popular gospel today, my friends. Have you seen it? It's everywhere. It's almost taught ubiquitously, it seems. That's the popular gospel. Of course it's popular. Of course it is, because it's accommodating to the broad way that leads to destruction. We are born deaf, God gives us hearing. As the Bible teaches us, Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing 
and hearing by the word of Christ. So the answer to the question, but how does an unbeliever who's spiritually dead actually hear Jesus calling them is simple. God gives grace to the humble, a.k.a. spiritual hearing. And on Sunday, we closed with the concept of Orthodox Christianity. And I, again, I don't like it, okay? So don't go, oh, we're, we're hey, hey, neighbor, we're Orthodox Christians, and you're lowlife. We're Orthodox, and you're Protestant or Catholic. Shut up. I don't want that to happen. You see what happens? You, 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 you do another word, and everybody, it's like a cancer. All of a sudden, everybody's like, yeah, orthodox. It's got like three syllables. Three syllables, right? That's big enough for me. Don't do it. Please don't do it. Just get what I'm trying to say to you. Orthodox just means the way it should be. Biblical. Orthodox. That's what it means. And it's what I've been teaching you for years now, frankly since 2015, the end, when I literally threw the entire website in a basket and started over again. Why? Because I was in that space between here and here. I was in here teaching you that I knew what the hell I was talking about. And I didn't. That sucks. But you know, hey, don't get all judgmental. Because as I've told probably everybody in here, the only way he was going to deliver you from where you were was by me. And you were going to listen to some Pied Piper that was off over there a little bit. And then eventually you'd come around. So don't be judging me. <laughs> On Sunday I gave you a bunch of quotes from other pastors and theologians just so you could hear the truth in the words or the expression of others. I think that's healthy once in a while. Not always, because it can get dangerous when people start going crazy. Then it becomes, well, I'm from Apollos. For example, James Montgomery Boyce, we often hear the Savior characteristics of God stressed, his love, mercy, goodness, and so on, but the matter of his lordship is absent. The distortion is particularly clear in evangelism. In modern practice, the call to repentance is usually called an invitation. Why not just call it repentance? Anyways, which one can obviously accept or refuse. It is offered politely. God forbid. God forbid you offend someone. God forbid you're not PC. I mean, is Christ even PC? No way, right? You even say Jesus, you're now in the non-PC bucket, right? You're the, you're a threat. You're one of them. Seldom do we hear presented God's sovereign demand to repent or His demand for total submission to the authority of His, of his appointed King, Christ Jesus. It's true. And just to be clear, I gave you this on Sunday, and I want you to realize that, that these are things that, I, it's not all I believe, but these are things that I believe. So if anyone tells you any difference, let me know, because it's, it's ridiculous. You, the, the killer is that people do what some of you do. You, they go skating around people's websites, and they pluck off a blog, or they pluck off a single lesson completely out of context. You notice our lessons are usually like, 
I don't know, 10, 15, sometimes 20 lessons long. You, there's, there's a thing in the middle called the context, right? You know, people just pick one thing and they're like, oh, wow, he's teaching this or he's teaching, no, what? Go away. I do believe these things, though. Jesus preached repentance. Hopefully you do. Jesus preached belief in himself. God is all-sufficient in his saving grace. Man is held accountable by God in salvation, and God elects and draws every believer to Christ. Okay. Other things, justification by faith. Of course I believe those things. Now, I'm going to give you, because we're just about out of time, one of the longest quotes of all from an evangelist that many of you know. So sit back, relax. Close your Bibles. Sit back and relax. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so some of you know this person. It says, Pastor encouraged us all to reach out to him with any questions. In case you didn't catch it, he doesn't want any of us to be confused. And the Spirit put the following comments on my heart, even after this lesson was prepared. Let pastor do his job in your life. We have a willing under-shepherd who cares for us, and his motivation is the love of Christ. In other words, allow him to shepherd you personally even, to do the job he was meant to do, for your benefit. Some of you kick against the goads. Some of you resist his help because of issues of personality or pride. But a pastor, a true shepherd for the Lord, has a gift to care for and contend for his sheep. Let him do that in your life. Take advantage of his gift and his loving support without taking advantage of him. God has given gifts in the body of Christ so that we can work together and fit together perfectly to the glory of God. Don't kick against the authority, especially when you know He has your best interests in mind. I'll confess, Pastor has helped me personally, spiritually, several times over the years whether it was questions I had or battles I was fighting from attacks on my faith. So don't be so proud. Be humble under God's authority in your life. It's been graciously granted by God to you personally for your own benefit and edification. Listen to Him when He welcomes you to reach out to Him with questions or if you're dealing with attacks on your faith from the outside. God gives grace to the humble. Amen? And just in case you didn't catch it, that familiar evangelist is none other than our own Mr. Scott Grundy. Thank you for your diligence, my friend. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this wonderful evening to fellowship with you, to break bread, the very bread of life together as family. Thank you for maintaining a supernatural unity amongst us. We're not perfect, but we always come back to your Son. Thank you for giving us ears to hear so that we may follow him always to the end of our days. 
We just ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.